You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another episode. The Greatest Peaks series is a wrap. It is finally over after many, many months. The 16th episode, uh, the finale of the series, is up on YouTube. A huge thanks to everyone for all your support. Patreon supporters, of course, for, in a way, really making that series possible because... The origins of that idea came from someone asking, it was a long time ago, and I had thought about something like doing a Greatest Peaks, but but something like, you know, is Steph Curry ever going to get a Backpicks 40 profile? And I had had the idea to just do a deeper video dive, basically, on him. Um, and then I thought, well, if you're going to do Curry like that, you got to do some others like that. Why not just turn it into a a series of videos on the peaks and that's how it came about that was a long time ago now gosh that was like 2019 and then I really started production on the series uh around early early days of the pandemic in 2020 May or June I want to say it's all it's all kind of become a blur so today um it's been a while since the latest podcast and programming notes going forward We're going to switch back to more topical, regular podcasts. Uh, I'm not sure it'll be weekly right away, but as I really ramp up uh, on the season, I've now started watching 2021 basketball. So I feel, I don't know, do people feel comfortable with what's going on out there in 2021? Um, I mean, this episode is really just going to be a retrospective on some Peaks questions and um, talking about things like the playoff data used in the series, but let me throw that out to all you listening, and you can respond in the places you respond at LG35 on Twitter, things like that. My assessment so far from familiarizing myself with the season for the last month or so is that because of all the lineup changes, because of all the injuries, um, because of the COVID protocol, because of the lack of home court uh, with no fans and things like that, the home court advantage is is very small without fans. Um, it, it just doesn't feel like a reliable regular season. And in a way, this is actually going to connect to what I talk about later with playoff plus minus, where there's still a kind of signal, right? Like the regular season stuff we're seeing still matters. Um, the actual data in terms of games played or on off or, you know, certain. Uh, a net rating of a team, their margin of victory, something like that, still has information in it that's relevant to what's going to happen in the playoffs. But what I'm throwing out there, what it seems to me to be the case, is that it's this information is less reflective or less reliable than it's been in prior years, frankly, maybe any other year I can think of. 
Um, the 2012 lockout season had sort of a nice pace to it over 66 games that felt pretty good. I bring that up to say the season that comes to mind is 1999, only 13 years prior, but the players came in out of shape in many cases. It was a 50-game season that that extra 16 games felt like it made a big difference uh, in sort of stabilizing our expectations around, you know, what to make of the regular season performance relative to the playoffs. So uh, let me know what you think. Um, As I said, there's certainly a signal there. It just doesn't seem as strong or reliable as it normally is in other years. So we'll, we'll talk plenty more about the rest of the 2021 season in the coming weeks as we lead up to the playoffs and then getting back to much more uh, regularly scheduled programming uh, around that time. But for now, let's wrap up sort of greatest peaks, take a few questions. And I do want to discuss, as I said, postseason plus minus, uh, because it just became something that I thought more and more about throughout the series. And if you followed along, you saw the playoff plus minus data being referenced. And I, I still feel like it's something that hasn't really, you know, been discussed or given it certain due uh, in a lot of these conversations or in public settings. So I do want to circle back to that. First, some questions. This is from a, a Patreon subscriber, Sean. Not going to go for the last name. We'll call him Sean K. Uh, he was wondering after watching the finale video where I ended up with Durant, Kobe, Walton, and Robinson of the next four players. Uh, I probably would have Kobe next. Um, I ended up a little bit higher on him than I have been in previous iterations historically. Durant, I think, would go next after him. And then probably Walton and Robinson were very close uh, rounding out the field there. But again, I tried to make the point right up front in the video that if you just extended the same concepts as you see in the top 10 countdown... The huge takeaway for me was how hard it was to differentiate, even just trying to use the same kind of range concepts that I use in the in the typical regular season top 10 or the it's not regular season. I care about the playoffs, but the end of a given season, a single season, that was the word I was looking for. Boy, the podcast rust when you can't think of the word single or individual uh, Durant, Kobe, both of those guys, I thought they're high end would have taken them up to, I think off the top of my head, it was eighth, holding everyone else constant. And just for simplicity, I always hold everyone else constant in that case, but I referenced it when comparing Kobe, uh, excuse me, uh, Shaq, and Michael Jordan at the very end of the video there. If you took someone else's low end and someone else's high end, uh, then of course you can make the argument that you know, the guy with the high end, and then you move the low end down. And so I could make the argument for Kobe and Durant, and even Walton and Robinson over some more folks who made the top 10. That's got to be the first time the all time greatest basketball players have been referred to as folks, folks in the top 10. This is what happens when you don't podcast. Actually, I haven't spoken much. I I lost my voice. Um, I'm not sure if you can hear it. I lost my voice a little over a week ago, so I'm trying to get back, get used to used to speaking again, and apparently my vocabulary turns into that of a, 
a 1930s school teacher. Um, more questions from at Greg Pace, Ohio. Does it seem like AD is on the verge of having an all-time peak? Uh he actually strikes me as someone who we're watching his peak. My assumption was right around 2019. 2018 was when he really jumped out to me, especially in that series against the Warriors. Uh, just you know, being able to play a team that good and also look that good. And this is one of the, by the way, as an aside, this reminds me of you know players like Garnett who are put in similar situations where you don't expect their team to win because they're totally overmatched. They're playing another generational star. In that case, Durant and Curry were on the other side of the court. With Garnett, it was uh, Tim Duncan and sometimes Duncan and Robinson or Shaq and Kobe in 2003 and 2004. And then to me, when I watch the series, when I break it down, when I look at defense, passing, all the things that we care about, and you even get into the data, the guy looks like he played a great series. Uh, there might be something where you look at a game – in retrospect, and you say, oh, he shot 10 for 25. You know, he doesn't have the scoring. Um, he was inefficient. Uh, he really got locked down in that series. I see it most of the times as the opposite. I see that 2018 series. I don't know off the top of my head what Anthony Davis's scoring numbers were in the series, but I can tell you he jumped out as a, like, superstar-type player to me based on all the things I've talked about with him, with his defense and um, his off-ball game on offense, just his instincts and athleticism. And, of course, this is a guy who had tremendous promise uh, right right out of the gate in his one year of college at Kentucky, a transcendent year. And then that defensive championship game performance was absolutely incredible. So with guys like that that are doing things outside of the scoring dimension, it's often those moments for me as they're young, you know, what was he, 24 or 25 in that series? It's as they crest into their prime that they really pop for me. And the same thing happened with Garnett. And then years later, assume, you know, Anthony Davis stayed in New Orleans instead of leaving. Years later, that seems to be used as arguments against those kinds of players. Maybe something similar could be said about Tracy McGrady in his early days, things like that. So it's just a pattern that I feel like I've noticed with players who are in poor situations. Davis, of course, went to a better situation. I thought after that 2018 series that playmaking and passing was going to have to be the thing that he expanded on so he could have more of that hybrid on-ball influence that I've talked about as an offensive centerpiece on certain possessions. I thought he started to do that in 2019. And so kind of in my head, 2019, given his age, given his performance, given his improvements in those areas, that's where I thought the heart of his prime like these are his best years coming up and I thought we got a year like that in 2020 I don't see any reason to think that he would really level up so I think we're kind of really in the midst of whatever that peak is and as someone who's very high on him I of course see that as falling you know is he going to be more David Robinson or more Kevin Garnett uh, just to link back to sort of how I see these players so he's a guy who's in the conversation, along with other modern greats. I mean, when we talk about the difference between the 12th best peak in history and the 20th or 25th best peak in history, those guys aren't that far apart. So I think he's already kind of in that discussion. James Harden's a current player who, many people know I'm lower on him than uh, a lot of his big fans, 
but he's in that discussion. Giannis is in that discussion. Uh, and the, the guy in Denver this year, I mean, we haven't spoken about the current season in a while, but I'm going to have some more materials coming up on Nikola Jokic uh, just offensively putting forth one of the all-time, one of the all-time great big man seasons that there is. Yeah, he's fantastic. So there's something else I want to bring up, and that is the Shuffle podcast app, where I just feel like we need more cowbell on the Thinking Basketball page. I've mentioned Shuffle before. It's a social podcasting app, so it's a podcast listener, but then also has interactivity, comments. You can clip segments and make little memes and things like that. It's kind of like an Apple podcast meets Reddit. And each podcast, like the Thinking Basketball podcast, has a page there. And what's exciting for me is it's a central place where I can see reactions, feedback, and interact about specific segments and specific episodes. Sometimes I'm doing a solo podcast and just talking to myself in the ether here. So that's really exciting for me to be able to see that all in one place. Clip your favorite segment from this show. See what other fans are saying. Let me know what you think. You can check it out at getshuffle.app slash thinkingbasketball. That's G-E-T-S-H-U-F-F-L-E dot app slash thinkingbasketball. Check it out today. Uh, Another modern player. This is from Milto22. I wonder if not including CP3 as an honorable mention was on purpose or just because you had to make a cut. Uh, More about making a cut. I think Paul is a really interesting player. I will re-examine him in the next series. I think he's a really, really interesting player to discuss. Uh, but that, yeah, that was more about just making cuts and not having like a sixth, seventh, eighth extra guy in there. He's, in my mind, basically in that same group. And then finally, I wonder if you buy into the argument that Jordan is a more consistent playoff performer than LeBron. So this gets back to What I just said about watching a guy in a series and then having scoring be the thing that's held against him when he did everything else really, really well. And especially in a small series, by the way. I mean, six, seven game series, it's a little less likely for this to impact your numbers, but they do, uh, even in a series like that. Things like heaves, late clock stuff, putbacks, the the wonderful play-by-play stats.com site that I cite so often, cite with a C, not cite with an S, um, that I reference so often. Um, over there, the creator of that site, Daryl Blackport, he has a stat, and he got this from someone else. He may have got this, oh, I don't want to miscredit who gave it to him. We'll have to circle back on this. He got this from someone else. Following your own shot and getting the offensive rebound, he calls these Z-bounds after Zach Randolph, and it's something that I've played around with adjustments for, uh, you, you've seen the reference to this recently in my Zion Williamson video. There are a few players in history that have this pattern of just scooping in a bunch of their own misses near the basket as kind of part of their attack. I mean, Zion's basically doing this once a game. And so when you adjust for that, adjust that alone for a, for a player like Zion is going to change his true shooting percentage at once a game. Over the course of the season, it's about 2% right now. Uh, he gets like a 2 or 2.5% bump in his true shooting percentage if you just count that as one scoring attempt, which is what true shooting is really trying to 
capture. It's points per scoring attempt. It's if we made everything a two-point shot, when you shot, but free throws don't count as a shot, so we got to account for that somehow. Okay. Heaves, hot potato, possessions kind of at the end of the shot clock, all of these things. In the 2019 finals, one thing I found interesting was Steph Curry's one of the unique players in the modern game who loves to try to make threes at the end of the buzzer from anywhere on the court. And so he'll take way more of these shots than anyone else over the course of a season. And just those alone in the finals against the Raptors, he had a handful of them. And so you take those shot attempts out and all of a sudden you get the true shooting percentage going up like another 2% or things like that. So in short series, the idea that a player had a really bad game because his shooting line wasn't that great is something that isn't always true it's a it's one of those this is a high level starting point places not an end point okay so I bring that up only to say that Jordan to me is the best scorer ever and scoring is the thing that he's going to do Uh, also just a mindset like he wants to volume score toning it down for him was getting back down to 30 points per game in the regular season as his career progressed into the 90s. Like, this is his mindset. This is a slightly different mindset than a guy who I also consider one of the greatest scorers ever, LeBron James. And I think LeBron is more apt to have games where, you know, he just doesn't volume shoot as much. Michael, in 1993, the famous example from the Knicks series in the Eastern Conference Finals that year... They were down 2 nothing. Game 3, that's right, the Bulls were down 2 nothing. Game 3, he shot 3 of 18. Now, he had a ton of free throws, and those free throws, of course, count. But it was not a good shooting game, and not even necessarily a good scoring game for him. But I always use that as an example of what a bad scoring game looks like for Michael Jordan in a key moment. It's going to have an incredible amount of volume still attached to it, so when you think about these moments, you, you never really think about him disappearing scoring-wise. All of that is to say, I might consider Michael slightly more consistent just because he constantly puts that accelerator down. There's, there's so few games where his aggression, once he touches the basketball, isn't really high. Uh, as, he, as he moved through his career, I think he became a little more patient and would let the game come to him in some of those bigger moments in playoff series. But he's always going to do that, and he always did that quite well. Um, Just incredible focus in that area. LeBron, I think, by definition, you can make the argument that 2011, which is such an outlying series among great players, makes him less consistent just by definition. But even looking at like 2012, 2013, 2014, I think he's pretty close to bringing it and playing incredibly well every single night, but I'm not as confident saying that, I mean, I'm splitting hairs here again with these two guys because I do think what happened to LeBron as his offense developed over this part of his career and his offensive peak arguably is a couple years later when he goes back to Cleveland, right? I think what happened is he just balanced comfort with his outside shot with his passing improving and his ability to read the way defenses played him once he got settled with space around him. So more spacing, uh, stretch bigs, 
they had stretch bigs in Cleveland, but Ilgoskis wasn't popping to the three-point line. So let's keep Bosch out of the lane. Kevin Love was a deadly three-point shooter. As an aside, Kevin Love, by the way, who got a lot of heat for how he played in 2016 and why he wasn't the quote-unquote same Kevin Love that he was in Minnesota once he went to Cleveland. As a great outside shooter, as a spacer, as a guy who didn't demand possessions and take stuff off stuff off the board for his teammates, he, he's not a high-opportunity-cost player. Kevin Love, his offensive lineups when he was on the court with LeBron absolutely stand out in their time together in Cleveland. If you've, if you've never ever seen any plus minus data on this, absolutely phenomenal offensive lineups when they shared the court together for this same reason. So anyway, I think you can make the case that Jordan is a more consistent playoff performer just based on what happened in 2011 and even 2010 when he was in Cleveland. But once LeBron's offense kind of gets going in in the ensuing seasons. And if you looked at like 2012 to 2018, uh, even if you could come up with some metric, right, of consistency that showed Jordan was slightly more consistent than LeBron, I'm not sure how much I would care at that point. Uh, it just doesn't seem to be that big of a difference. James, the other thing about James, and this would fall into the um, consistency argument, is I really, really have thought Basically, his entire career, he's a player that figures out the series as it goes on. He's like a boxer who in the first game, that's the first round, they're feeling out the opponent and how the defense is going to play against him. And yeah, I do think some of this is inherent to the idea of LeBron Ball and him being so ball dominant in the half court and kind of monopolizing the game. Of course, that offense is incredibly good. That's why he does it, just like Magic. It's just that archetype. But part of that archetype is he's more like the quarterback out there. Of course, that metaphor has been used forever. And so he's checking to see, okay, what's what's this coverage look like? Is this going to be a blitz? Is this going to be a zone? Are they going to show blitz and actually drop back into, you know, drop seven deep or something? This is, to me, how he goes through a playoff series. And so that's another thing that might make him feel less consistent or technically actually be less consistent from game to game. But I kind of care more about the series to series consistency if I'm evaluating a player. So I don't know how much it would be a a factor for me um, with LeBron and Jordan. Okay, one more question. This is from Gabriel Guzman, uh, also a Patreon subscriber. What would your top 10 look like from this series of offensive players only? He also asked about defensive players. We'll just we'll just stick to offense um, so my brain doesn't completely explode. Uh, <laughs> top 10 offensive players only among the greatest peaks profiles that we looked at. I would say, let's see. 10th would have to be essentially a tie, a coin flip between Garnett and Duncan. I've kind of talked through their strengths and weaknesses specifically in the video, uh, in both of their videos before, Uh, but I feel more like I'm flipping a coin with those guys where it's one of those situations based on the team construction. I I do view Garnett as having sort of that 
ceiling raising attribute that's a little bit stronger um, than Duncan's where his skill set is a little bit better for certain kinds of floor raising, let's say. But those guys would kind of be uh, in my number 10 position. Jumping up a level, Kareem would go ninth. Wow, there's a lot of there's a lot of great offensive players in this series. Um, you kind of realize that when you're like, wow, Kareem is only ninth and yet such a good offensive player. Eighth, I would have Durant. Remember, this is this is offense only from the players in the series. So I would say eighth Durant. And then seventh would be Kobe for me. And now we're starting to get pretty close to a group of players that's very similar. But I, I think the four, five, six guys, you know what? It would have to really be three, four, five, six. Now that I look at it, three, four, five, six in some order would be Magic, LeBron, Larry Bird, and Shaq. Um, I'm not exactly sure how I would differentiate all those guys. So Magic and LeBron have that quarterback model, and Shaq and Bird have more of an off-ball scaling game. I think Bird, in many ways, is one of the all-time scalers, of course. So maybe it's worth stopping here and talking about this. Uh, I had thought about putting out more information on this in detail or circling back to it. There's an entire chapter in Thinking Basketball, the book, on the concept of portability or scalability. But I have seen it over the years misinterpreted misinterpreted a lot, uh, and that certainly always falls back on, on me as the communicator of the idea to try to clarify it and just be better, basically, about having the message more clearly defined. So in the case of Magic and LeBron, when we say they don't scale, a lot of people hear, well, they can't play on good offenses. And that's not what's being said at all. Bird, let's let's take Larry Bird. Let's, for the sake of argument, say he makes an offense five points better, okay? Five points per 100 better when he's on the court. When I talk like that, we have to understand what level of offense he's making better because if he joins a lottery team the likelihood that he's playing next to two ball dominant players who are high level scorers and playmakers is essentially zero right think about that it's essentially zero you can't have a team win 20 or 25 games and have two uh, really high level on-ball offensive stars who can score and play make. So, okay, would that team have a lot of good shooters around them? In the old days, would it have post players or perimeter players or uh, point guards who can pass and kind of run your system and ball handle and take that responsibility, but we wouldn't think of them as offensive engines or centerpieces? This is, this is what you have to think about. Um, it's inescapable. You have to realize that players are going to have different impact next to different types of talents in different systems. So what I like to do is think about teams that are roughly around 500. And that's when I say like Larry Bird's a plus five offensive player. That might mean he'll join a an offense that's around league average and he can take them into the top three by adding five points per 100 possessions. But you would never, you would never basically expect a player to have the same offensive impact on a 20-win offense 
than he would by joining the 2016-17 Golden State Warriors. The 1988 Boston Celtics, speaking of Bird, were one of the best offenses ever when they were healthy, period, but when they were healthy, especially. And if you took peak Michael Jordan, 1988 or 1989, and dropped him on that team, you would not expect him to take that offense from plus nine or plus 10 or whatever it is to plus 16. Um, For those who are uninitiated, no one's ever been above plus, you know, 12 or 13 or something like that. Um, And even in a larger sample, maybe off the top of my head, plus 11, the the 2017 Warriors were crazy when they were, were healthy, but very, very hard to continue to improve at the edges of the the horizon of all-time performance in basketball. So with LeBron and Magic, if I put them on a roughly 500 team, I expect them to take that offense to greater heights than if I put someone like Bird or maybe even Shaq, depending on roster construction, on the team, okay? But what happens when I join a 50-win team? What happens when I join a 55-win team? What happens when I join a 60-win team? You're you're having to trade. That team became a 60-win team because it has other players doing certain things with the ball. Um, and in a lot of cases, on-ball players. And so when you bring in a Magic or LeBron, you'll still get a very good team, but you have there's a trade-off. You can't add it. It's not as additive. So... If LeBron gets more of the possessions, then Wade doesn't get as many possessions. I've seen people say, well, doesn't that mean that LeBron fits with more players? Well, technically, maybe, because you can just cycle dozens and dozens and dozens of role players around him. But the fit we're talking about here is actually fit with higher level teams, which usually means fitting with their offensive engines. I hope that's clear. And maybe more importantly, I feel like we need a better a better metaphor or analogy or something like that to drive that home. Uh, I thought LeBron's, the stat about LeBron from 2011 to 2017, playing 92 games without Wade or Kyrie Irving and the offense humming and the team playing at a 60 win pace. They went 67 and 25 in those games with a plus 7.3 margin of victory. I mean, that, to me, says everything about this floor-raising kind of, if, if you're LeBron and you, if you have a team and you add LeBron and that team is, could be around 500 or even below 500, you are going to get lifted to incredible heights. But the way that that is achieved is not necessarily something that stacks on top of every other player you could either bring in or if you added LeBron to a fresh team. You could add LeBron to a fresh team that team could have way more talent, you still have to give LeBron the ball to maximize his value. If you didn't do that, you could still be a 65 or even 70 win team. You know, I'm not saying that there's a 65 win team that you couldn't add LeBron to to get to 70 wins. But what I am saying is that if you added Bird or Shaq or some other player that might blend better with that team, they might get you to 73 wins or 75 wins. That's the difference. You all know how excited I get about HelloFresh. And today's even more exciting because I got a new deal for you as a listener. It's 12 free meals now if you sign up over there at 
HelloFresh.com slash ThinkingBasketball12. That's HelloFresh.com slash ThinkingBasketball12. And then use the promo code ThinkingBasketball12, and you're going to get 12 free meals including free shipping. Uh, I've talked about HelloFresh before. I get more excited about it sometimes than the basketball. Basically, they deliver meals to your door. They have a ton of options based on different preferences or if you're looking for different dietary restrictions or types or things like that. They send it to you, pick it up at the door, head into your kitchen 20 or 30 minutes later, all these cool little instructions, clear, laid out ways to cook. You can get into techniques or food that you would never think about cooking before because it's all made really easy for you. And then you got a delicious, tasty meal 20 or 30 minutes later that you put together. Really easy. HelloFresh.com slash ThinkingBasketball12. Use the promo code ThinkingBasketball12 and get those 12 free meals, including free shipping, today. Okay, where was I in the list? I think I misspoke. I, I, I knew I was counting incorrectly. Um, four, five, six to me would be between LeBron, Shaq, and Bird. I think I would, I want to say I would put Shaq at the back of that group and have go, go LeBron, Bird, Shaq in, in that order. But I mean, I can also see just glancing and looking at my notes and the ranges and things I used at like Shaq could be right there with them offensively. And then for this series, I, I would say that I have three GOAT candidates, three offensive GOAT candidates, and that's Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan, and Steph Curry. These guys are all different players in their own right as well. Uh, Magic's that quarterback model. Jordan is a little bit of mix of on-ball, off-ball, and Curry, um, Curry is also a mix of on-ball, off-ball, but his scoring and that off-ball impact um, is just like a like a nuclear weapon. Uh, I think you can make an argument for all three of these, not just for the best offensive player in the series, but also in general, you can make different kinds of arguments based on uncertainty. You know, we don't have certain data for Magic. We don't have certain data for Jordan. You know, Curry, he, he played in this system and then Durant came in and there's playoff injuries. Like there's there's a level of uncertainty for me with all of these players but I think if I'm going to make the the home run argument, Curry might have the best home run argument. Jordan also, um, the highest of his highs is also right there. And then Magic, I mean, we're, we're flipping the coin here. So Magic is also there, but I would say I have less confident in like Magic's high end of the high ends being as good as what you've seen from Curry and Jordan. I, I really do think one of the great lessons of the last decade is that we're talking about this 6'2 dude from Davidson as possibly being a better offensive player than Michael Jordan. And if you if you grew up with Jordan in the 90s, it, it probably sounds less crazy if you grew up with Bird and Magic or the big men of the 70s before that. But once you're in that era and you're in that post-Jordan era and all the um, kind of mystique that goes with that. It's really incredible to think that based on, I mean, certainly based on the data, but I also just think based on watching the film and the way the game is played, that Curry is the guy of all the guys who really seems to have a good argument uh, to offensively eclipse 
not just Jordan, but even guys like Magic Johnson. And I mean, LeBron, these are, these are tough to think about, but completely neuter LeBron's defense in your mind. I mean, I still think we're talking about uh, Curry being a better offensive player. The challenge is when we think about playoffs, as long as someone has the impact on defense, their team is going to be in a better position to win. And so the things happening at the end of the game offensively that stick in our memory are also going to be granted to those players um, who are having that two-way impact. Okay, before we wrap up, before my my voice completely goes again, quickly let's talk about playoff plus minus and sort of the big thought I was having going through the series, uh, watching the games, looking at game-level data, series-level data, things like that. I would say that playoff plus minus is probably far more valuable than we think of it. Like most people, I just don't see it talked about a lot. So I would think of it as being far more valuable than we think, but at the very same time, it's extremely noisy still, right? So even using three-year or four-year runs um, to try to get a remotely decent sample is still going to have some noise in the signal. We're not always controlling for opponent quality. That's something that I think we could look to do in the future. I don't know if strictly running playoff adjusted plus minus models mathematically is the best way to do this because I, I think it's just going to inherently be too noisy to get a really nice signal. But The point here is I do think there's a lot of valuable information in playoff plus minus once you start to get the larger samples. Sometimes the off sample is really small and that is adding a ton of noise. So a guy in three years only sits on the bench for like 200 minutes or something like that. And, you know, if his team has a great quarter or two, that might change his on off value by five points in one direction. If they have a horrible quarter and they fall apart against a specific opponent, it might change it by five points in the other direction. And so then you go look at the on-off and you say like, oh, this one guy's plus 20 and the other guy's plus 10. There must be a big difference between them. And unfortunately, no, I don't think you can say that. It's still too noisy. But I do think there's a ton of valuable information in there. And this information is a component in, for instance, PIPM, of course, Jacob Goldstein's stat um, that is now no longer publicly available, but you saw it used historically throughout the series that has playoff plus minus from 1997. And similarly, the idea of augmented plus minus is to try to model what uh, an adjusted plus minus number would look like in a smaller sample using things more stabilizing. So you use information about the teammates, you use the box score, uh, and you do it that way. I'll publish some of these numbers in more detail for Patreon subscribers this week, but here are the high-level takeaways. This is what I started finding really interesting going through the Peak series. The relationship between on-off value and like a multi-year adjusted plus-minus, prior informed or two-year or three-year, the ones that I've seen at least, the relationship is pretty healthy. So in the database that I publish for Patreon subscribers, the correlation between on-off, just basic net on-off, and adjusted plus-minus is 0.67. So that's that's a pretty nice correlation. And if you use augmented plus-minus and compare it to 
adjusted plus minus, uh, it gets up to 0.79. Remember, one is a perfect correlation. It would be exactly the same. So, you know, anytime you start getting into the point, 0.8s and 0.9s, um, the data is typically going to have similarities. There's not going to be massive differences between one stat and the other. And they relate because on-off has a huge uh, mathematical weighting in an adjusted plus minus for many for many of the players the adjustments just aren't going to make a huge difference relative to their raw on off or in this case augmented plus minus has some more intelligence baked into it now that's over a full season sample so in the playoffs there's still more noise in both of those stats just keep that in mind we are still talking about something noisy but just by comparison, if you look at the kind of kings of plus-minus from the play-by-play era, the last quarter century, you will see Steph Curry, uh, you will see Kevin Garnett, you'll see Shaq, you'll see LeBron James. Other names that will pop up will be Tim Duncan, Chris Paul. Um, she, did I say Shaquille O'Neal? He's one of the kings. You'll see names like Manu Ginobili, John Stockton, uh, Dirk Nowitzki. Okay, here's the top 10 just using on-off now, just using going back to that basic on-off. Here's the top 10 five-year on-off stretches in the play-by-play era since 1990. Let's do this one since 1997. We have it going back to 1994, and that would get other names in there, but let's just look at this from 1997. Here are the top 10 guys. Remember those names I just mentioned. Here are the top 10 guys. Number one, Steph Curry. He's plus 19.4 per 48 minutes. I'm going to do this per 48 minutes just because that's how I had the the database set up. Um, Steph Curry, plus 19.4. There's a huge drop-off to second. Sean Marion is actually second, plus 16.1 from 2005 to 2009. That Curry run was um, 2016 to 20, I think, off the top of my head. Then you have LeBron, 2009 to 2013. Kevin Garnett, Chris Paul, Dirk Nowitzki, those guys are all around plus 15. 2000 to 2004, Shaq is plus 13. Tim Duncan's plus 12. John Stockton, 1997 to 2001, is plus 12. Carl Malone's plus 11. If we kept going, we'd get Manu Ginobili. Uh, It's the same names, typically, is the point I'm making. And going full circle, I find it really helpful to have this impact data that doesn't care about scoring or shooting. Uh, None of those things are the inputs. It doesn't matter how you skin the cat. It's just trying to measure impact on the court. And so what we actually might expect to happen and what I have um, hypothesized is happening with some of Steph Curry's scoring numbers in the playoffs. Injuries aside, I just think uh, this is an example of defenses changing things. We expect a game plan that the opposing team comes up with that might take away a strength to either have a counter or not have a counter. If it has a counter, that counter isn't always going to be scoring or going to produce the same stats we see in the regular season. So one thing that might happen is scoring might go down, assists might go up, but that might not happen either because of the nature of creating shots, hockey assists and moving off the ball and things like that. Um, I've often thought about this when we talk about series MVPs or finals MVPs. Like 
I think it should be called the Larry Bird corollary going back to 1981. If one opposing defense focuses all their attention on you and that drives your scoring numbers down because your counter is to pass more and one of your teammates is the recipient of that, the beneficiary of that, in that case it was Cedric Maxwell, or maybe, you know, maybe Maxwell just didn't ever get double covered because no one was going to leave Bird. Bird was the focal point of the team. All that kind of stuff, to me, applies in a playoff series where I still care about impact. And so we would expect your numbers sometimes to change based on the counter, but your counter might be as effective as your regular season impact or as your impact otherwise would be. And heck, it might be more effective. You might be more valuable with weaker numbers. If you want to support this podcast and all things Thinking Basketball, head on over to patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball. It's the best way to directly support everything Thinking Basketball, as well as checking out those sponsors, the Shuffle app, that's getshuffle.app slash thinkingbasketball, and of course, HelloFresh, hellofresh.com slash thinkingbasketball12 for those 12 free meals with the code thinkingbasketball12. Thanks, as always, for listening all the way to the end of this one. Hope you enjoyed it. Excited to get back into some 2021 content. Until the next episode, wherever you are out there listening, I, of course, hope you're having a great day.